Well, praise the Lord. If you would uh, remain standing for a little while, I hate that he built your expectations up. I don't know if I can live up to him, but we'll see what happens. And I'm uh, very, very honored to be your second preacher here tonight. It's a good thing he didn't steal my sermon out from under me or else I'd have no, uh, no leg to stand on here. But, you know, Jesus is good at saving the best for last. Just ask him about that wine and water incident. But anyways, we'll get to our scripture. It's Zephaniah 1 and 14. That's a funny name you don't hear very often. If anybody going to pull it up and if we can get it up on screen. Zephaniah 1 and 14. And it reads, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. You may be seated. So here in our text, which is sandwiched down in the mind of prophets, somewhere between some H name and some other Z name and all that, you, uh, you find this text that speaks of the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, what is that? That is obviously the coming of the Lord. If you're wondering at this funny word, it's up here. I'll explain in a moment. It's Roman, though, hence the Colosseum and all that. Okay, so the day of the Lord is the day of the Lord's return. It's the end of the world. It's, it's the day of the Lord. It's when he shall come back to earth. And Zephaniah was, of course, speaking to the children of Israel. And at this point in time, Israel was very downtrodden. They had turned away from the ways of God and they were full of sin. And so Zephaniah said this as a warning, saying the mighty men will weep when this day comes and the sound of it is horrible. But for us, this is a bit of a message of hope. Hey, Lord's coming back soon. We ain't going to have to deal with all this anymore. And according to our next, that day is not only coming, but it is very near. Now, it was millennia ago when the prophet spoke in our text, the day of the Lord. And these millennia ago, it was the time of Isaiah, or approximately that time. And Isaiah sort of saw the same message. He heard the same thing from God and wrote it down in the book of Isaiah. He looked around at Israel and he saw a den of thieves. He saw a people fallen to idolatry and reveling in the sins of darkness. He saw people who had forgotten that the night and the sins of darkness are only temporary and that the day of the Lord must come eventually. It is this that prompted him to pose this hypothetical question. And in Isaiah 21, he states, He calls to me out of seer, Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, The morning comes. It was only a few hundred years later that Paul echoed this sentiment in Romans 13, 11 through 12, saying, And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of our sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. That was 2,000 years ago. Since that time, the Roman Empire has fallen. The kingdoms of Europe were formed. The Mongolian Empire rose and fell accordingly. Algebra was formed. Stupid Abu Jafar Muhammad al-Khwarizmi. He made algebra. Not a nice man. <laughs> Shakespeare wrote his famous works. And uh, America was discovered and fought for. The light bulb was invented and man walked on the moon. We have hoverboards and drones, and there are rover tracks on Mars. It's been 2,000 years. But the day of the Lord has not come. Because of this, we've grown a bit stagnant. 
We no longer look to the eastern sky in hope of the sun's arrival. We no longer partake in the anticipation of Isaiah's watchmen. Instead, we are content to focus on the night and how dark the night has grown. Preachers love to quote the age-old adage, the night is darkest before the dawn, as a cry of hope that the darker the night gets, the closer it is to dawn. But while this is true, the converse is also true. The closer we get to dawn and the closer we get to the dawning of the day of the Lord, the darker the night will get. Peter recognized this while speaking to the gathered crowd at Pentecost in Acts 2 and 20, saying, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. If you want proof, step outside and look around. In this city alone, there are drug addicts and alcoholics, kids doing things that could send them to hell and parents that don't care enough to even notice. One more proof. Grab a paper. Arkansas can't pass a law making the murder of babies illegal. And we've been told that God's definition of marriage isn't good enough. Not enough. Flip on the news or uh, walk down the halls of our public schools. Kids are shooting other kids. Countries want to blow up other countries. And the woman of the year is a man. Hello, church. It's dark out there, both literally and figuratively. When the sun finally rises again, however, and it will, because the day of the Lord is coming, what will its light reveal? Now, that's, that's the question. Will we have allowed the darkness to overcome us? Will the church be trampled? Will there be but a remnant to see the coming of the Lord's day? Or rather, will the sun rise to uncover a church standing in the darkness? A church in the midst of revival. A church not only fighting, but winning. Here we are, church, at the end of the world. We've got our backs to the wall. Not only are we fighting an enemy that is greater in number, but we're on a clock. The night is growing darker because the day is getting closer. And we have only till it's breaking to win every soul we can. You see, as daunting as this seems, Paul wrote of the day coming, knowing that when everything had failed and it was down to the last stand, there was still hope. He knew his readers knew this too. Why? Because Paul was writing a letter to the Romans. Now, this is where our word comes in a little down the line, but... First, a little bit about Rome. The history of Rome itself spans 1,000 years. It was a city-state that became an empire so great that its collapse left a power vacuum that crippled all of the Western civilization for another 1,000 years. That's what we call the Dark Ages, the medieval periods before the Renaissance and all that good stuff. What was so great about the Romans, though, they were really good at beating people up. That's about it. I mean, they had some nice philosophers and everything, but they were just really good at beating people up. And not only were they good at it, but they were willing to adapt to do it. Military strategists will see Roman tactics divided into three definitive systems, the phalanx, the manipole, and the cohort. Now, this may sound a bit like a history lesson, but I promise I'll get us back to the Bible eventually. The phalanx was the first system the Romans used, and the cohort was the last, and I'll talk about those two before the manipole because it's the one I wish to dwell on a bit tonight. So the Romans adopted the phalanx from their Carthaginian and Greek enemies, and at the time, it was unstoppable on the field of battle. Basically, the idea is you get this huge block of soldiers, and you run at the enemy in a straight line, 
and nothing can beat you because everything else is in smaller groups. And so you have this huge block of soldiers that can bash through anything. Its most famous invention was the testudo, which means turtle in Roman, or the shield wall, as we like to call it, which in this formation, a man would take his shield and block his neighbor and himself, and the guy beside him would do so likewise. And so they were all blocked together, and then the men behind them would poke spears through the holes in the shields and stab at the people in front of them. Basically, the first tank, you know, before we had tanks. So the phalanx was great and all, it was extremely powerful on the field of battle, but that's the problem. It sort of needed a field to fight on. And as Rome expanded to central Italy, it found that mountains were really good at breaking phalanxes, you know, better than most enemies. And so they needed a new system. Not only were the mountains breaking the phalanxes, but their new enemies were, they used horses and they shot bows. And they didn't have to get close enough for you to stab them with your spear, or hit them with your army. Because they just hit and ran, hit, hit and ran. And they were a nuisance. So the Romans couldn't deploy troops fast enough because they're in these big, blocky phalanxes. So they decided upon a new system. Now, later in Rome's history, it was at its height and it developed a cohort. The cohort was similar to the phalanx in that each cohort was a block of soldiers. But the soldiers were different. Uh, instead of the traditional long spearmen and shield bearers of the phalanx, they were more light, and they carried different types of specialized tools like shovels and pickaxes, and they were basically entirely independent of each other. Each cohort functioned as a small army within the army, and each cohort could build bridges or tear down walls or erect fortresses or towers. Often cohorts would march through an area, and every night when they stopped, they stopped about two hours before dark, and in that time, they erected an entire fort wherever they were stopping, and then moved on and erected another fort the next day and another fort the next day. And so these, these cohorts were extremely independent, and Rome needed this at the time because it was so widespread and had such a huge army, no one could, you know, get all the pieces exactly and manage every little thing. My mom would hate that if she was the, the general over all the Roman army. She likes to be in control. But in this system, each cohort had a bit of its own control. And this was very fitting for the end of the Roman Empire. But that, that bit in between where they needed smaller groups and more uh, movable forces is where the manipole comes in. See, Paul, like every Roman, knew that the system that took Rome from having conquered southern Italy with the phalanx to having conquered the known world with a cohort was the manipole. And that its history lived on in its viewers, even though that Paul lived in the day of the cohort. Uh, every Roman still knew of the Manipole and knew of the history of Rome and its great military history because that's what Rome was. The Manipole, unlike the others we discussed, was based around small groups of soldiers, like I've said. There were three classes of soldiers, the Hastati, the Principe, and the Triarii. There you go. That's that word, Triarii. The Hastati were the men on the front lines, the job I don't want. They were equipped with light armor, a sword, and a small shield, and javelins. The, has, the Hastati consisted mainly of younger soldiers who were full of energy, but were somewhat lacking in experience. The second group was the Principe. They were better equipped than the Hastati, and slightly slower, and they were typically more experienced fighters, older fighters. You started out as a Hastati, you got through a couple battles, all right, they move you back to the Principe, and you're on the second line. But they were well, very well versed in warfare. The Hastati and the Principe would switch out 
at intervals during the battle. This is a really cool part of Roman tactics that they kept even in the cohort era, that they would move new troops in and then move new troops in, move new troops in, move new troops in, and your enemy's always fighting somebody who just got rested and is ready for battle. And the enemy with smaller numbers just couldn't keep up. But the Hastati and the Principe sometimes did fail. They were extremely strong. Most of Rome's battles were won by the Hastati or the Principe or the combination of the two. And only three or four battles in an entire year would fall to the next rank, the third type of soldier. And when things did get bad and when things came down to the last stand, things came down to the Triari. The Triari only had to fight about three times a year, as I've said, because battles rarely got that tough. And they grew so restless in between that their commanders often ordered them to literally sit on the ground because they would want to run into the combat. I don't know if they were crazy or if they just really liked fighting people. But they, they, they never got to use their fighting prowess, but they were the best soldiers of Rome. The reason they held them back is because they were Rome's trump card. If everything else failed, it goes to the Triari, or the Triarii. The Triarii were war-hardened veterans. They had made their way from Hestadi to Principe, and from Principe to Triarii, on a path paved with the bodies of their enemies and their friends. They were spearmen and soldiers fit for the phalanx system of old, and they were practically unstoppable. And if an enemy could break through the line after line of Hestadi and Principe, they emerged worn out and bloodied and staring down Rome's best fighters, fresh and ready for a fight. It was at some times like this that the Romans started saying, it's come to the Triarii, the title of this sermon. This saying was coined with sort of a duality or a dual meaning. On the one hand, it stated that... Uh, the rest of the army had failed. The Hastati and the Principi, yeah, or the Principi, they've been wiped out. And, uh, yeah, it's down to the Sharia. We're, we're in a pretty bad situation. Uh, in fact, it usually symbolized that this was the last stand, that the enemy is so great and so powerful that it had wiped out most of the front lines. It was a call reserved for the worst of times. No battle was ever lost if the enemy didn't reach the Triaria. So if it came down to the Triaria, things are getting pretty bad. It was a stark cry to remind the Triarii that they were, in fact, the last thing standing between Rome and an enemy that was ready to pillage and kill their houses and their families. So when it came to the Triarii, the battle would be decided. When it came to the Triarii, Rome would either conquer or fall. When it came to the Triarii, the night was as dark as it would ever get. Church, it has come to the Triarii. The other side of that saying was one of hope. It didn't mean that the battle was lost, only that it would be hard fought. It didn't say that the enemy had won, only that they had the upper hand. The enemy is tough. They've beaten everybody else. They've got their ravenous eyes set on Rome and raising it to the ground, but there's hope because it's come to the Triarii. Who better to fight Rome's last stand than the best soldiers in all of Rome? The battle may be tough, but so are the Triarii. They may fight uphill, but the Triarii can do that. To say that it has come to the Triarii is to say that, yeah, things are looking pretty grim. But our best fighters are on the field now. 
church, it's come to the triarii. The watchman of Isaiah was prompted, O watchman, what of the night? His answer, as we said earlier, the morning cometh. How did the watchman know that the morning was coming? I mean, this happened in ancient Israel. It's not like they had watches or Rolexes that they just, yeah, get the backlit screen and everything. Yeah, it's about, it's about 4.30 and sunrise at 5.15. Now, sun's coming and morning's coming. No, I don't, I don't quite think so. See, he knew the same way Zephaniah did. And he knew that same age-old adage, except I don't know what it would be in Hebrew, but that the night is darkest before the morning. He knew this the same way Paul did and the same way Peter did and the same way that each of the people we have read listed in the, in the Bible that they knew the morning was coming because the night was dark. They knew the darker it got, the closer it was to the dawning of the day of the Lord. We've already established that it's dark, church. I mean, very obviously, our world can't get much darker I can't imagine our world getting any darker than it is right now without the church itself being persecuted. So if you were to ask me, what of the night? My answer would be the same as my predecessors. The morning is coming. This is a warning, church. The night is not only going to get darker. However, the night is, is only going to get darker. However, my Bible tells me something about the church. You see, Haggai said the latter shall be greater than the former. Church, we aren't just the latter. I believe we are the last. There will be no better outpouring. There will be no stronger gathering of Christians. These are the last days, and we are the last church making our last stand. If the musicians would come. Church, you see, that puts us in this awkward position that we don't like much. That makes us the triarii. So yes, the situation's grim. The enemy has beaten through our front lines. Their numbers are greater than we are. Our predecessors, some of them have failed, and it's come down to us to make the last stand to save every soul we can. It's come to the triaria, if you would stand. You see, it's come to the triaria isn't just about battles rough it's about there's hope we are the last church we do have the greatest outpouring that god will ever put on the earth he has poured out his spirit this is the time when young men shall prophesy your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams see this is the time to put on your armor and to pick up your shield of faith to unsheath your sword and to wage war on the floor this is why we've got to pray. This is why we've got to read our Bibles. This is why we've got to witness. This is why we've got to teach Bible studies. And we've got to bring new people in that door. Because the last day is about to dawn. And the night's almost over. And it's come to us. And we are the triaria. We're the last stand. And if God's going to save this city, he's going to do it through you. If you come to these altars and offer yourself and make yourself available. Has the triaria making your last stand? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Jesus.